Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. This is so much fun, you guys. I'm a huge fan of, uh, you must remember this, and one of the most amazing things about this book that doesn't really happen all that often is that when you're reading it, it's Karina's voice in your head, right? Because you've already listened to like hundreds of hours of You Must Remember This. So reading the book is like a, another version of the episode. It's really, it's, you guys are going to love this, okay? So without further ado, please allow me to introduce Karina Longworth, the creator, writer, and host of You Must Remember This. created a little slideshow presentation for you guys. So I'm going to do that and then Mark Olson is going to come out and we're going to have a little conversation. So, welcome to, to a presentation about Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, written by me, Karina Longworth. Seduction is a nearly 500-page book spanning most of the 20th century and featuring dozens of characters. Rather than read one portion of the book that only covers a couple of these characters, I've put together this presentation to introduce you to the ten actresses whose stories of romantic and or professional relationships with Howard Hughes form the bulk of the book. Oh, um, this is the wrong slide. I don't, sorry, I don't know how this works. It just started going backwards. We'll start with Billy Dove, who is the first actress Hughes was known to have had a serious involvement with. Billy Dove was considered one of the most beautiful women in the world during the silent era. She was married to the director Irvin Willett, who was known for directing men's movies, as Billy put it, westerns and boat pictures. Willett frequently cast his wife in his movies, but these movies rarely had a role for an actress more substantial or interesting than that of a damsel in distress. Then Billy developed a relationship with a female director, Lois Weber, who directed Billy in two films, both of which were highly marketable romances which allowed Weber to use Billy Dove, the epitome of a glamorous Hollywood product, to critique the ways in which Hollywood spoke to women. These were Billy's favorite films of her career, and for the first time, they gave her the opportunity to really act. Billy divorced Willett and left the studio that had employed both she and her husband and signed a contract with Hughes. Hughes produced two Willie, Billy Dove movies, The Age for Love, which is lost and which was a major flop, and The Cock of the Air. A movie called The Cock of the Air was asking for a fight with the increasingly powerful censors. It was still the pre-code era, so Hughes got away with the title, and he got away with putting Dove in this costume, which looks a lot more risque in the movie. In fact, in the movie, it looks completely see-through and designed so that her boobs might fall out at any moment. 
the movie is basically about a CAD pilot who tries to have sex with Billy's character for the entire movie, and she teases him and holds out until he finally proposes marriage. This movie also bombed. <laughs> Billy and Howard broke up almost immediately after. When Billy signed her career over to Hughes, he was the hottest young producer in town, thanks to Hell's Angels, a World War I aviation drama which he produced and directed. Hell's Angels had taken three years to make. The first two years, it was a silent film, and then in 1929, Hughes decided to regroup and remake it as a talkie. He needed a new lead actress, because the one who had starred in the silent version had a heavy accent. He searched and searched, and then actor James Hall brought in an ex-girlfriend, then a 19-year-old unknown, for a screen test. No one was impressed with this test, except for Hughes. He signed Jean Harlow to a long-term contract. Jean Harlow was not an accomplished actress when she made Hell's Angels, but she had a look, and Hughes was smart enough to exploit the aspects of that look that made her unique. Nicknames for stars had been a big thing in the previous decades, and Hughes's publicist, Lincoln Korberg, coined the nickname Platinum Blonde for Harlow. This was helpful in promoting both the new star and the movie she starred in, Hell's Angels, because it combined in one marketing moniker Harlow's sex appeal with a fantasy of wealth and nostalgia for the era of movie star nicknames, which was also roughly the World War I era depicted in the movie. Thus, audiences were instructed to look at Harlow and inspired to think about the apocalyptic hedonism of the war era, which was a fun thing to do during the Depression. <laughs> Immediately after breaking up with Billy Dove, Hughes began dating Ginger Rogers, and they would be involved off and on until 1940. When they first went out in 1932, Ginger was not yet one half of the superstar dance duo Astaire and Rogers. She was a divorcee, thanks to a short-lived marriage when she was 17, and was mostly playing tertiary roles in Busby Berkeley musicals. Over the eight years that she was involved with Hughes, she would become a major star. In fact, the biggest female star at her studio, RKO. Her only rival for that position would be another actress involved with Hughes during this time. Katherine Hepburn made her first film, A Bill of Divorcement, at RKO in 1935, the same year as one of the most beloved Astaire and Rogers musicals, Top Hat. Hepburn was an instant sensation, and for the next three years, she and Rogers would battle for top position on the RKO lot. Rogers, like many female stars, looked up to Hepburn as a formidable actress and envied the fact that Hepburn was offered most of the best and challenging parts. Hepburn projected a sexuality that was unconventional, ambiguous, and daring, both on screen and off. And she was catty about the way that Rogers, quote, depended on her looks. Hepburn and Hughes were involved for several years in the mid-1930s, mostly, mostly during a period when her career was flagging. Her early burst of stardom came crashing down amidst a number of flops, including films that are now appreciated as classics, such as Bringing Up Baby, which lost an enormous amount of money when RKO first released it. So much, so, so much that soon after, the studio released Hepburn from her contract. 
There has been much speculate. There has been much speculation about Hepburn's sexuality, speculation which began in the 1930s and continues today. What is very clear is that Hepburn encouraged reporting about her relationship with Hughes while it was happening, and later in her life, in addition to positioning Spencer Tracy as the great love of her life, she spoke extensively and almost graphically about her sex life with Hughes, who she described as the best lover she ever had. Regardless of what else might have been going on in her life, and to what extent she used Hughes and other male lovers to further her career interests, she was definitely interested in tying part of her legacy to having had hot sex with Howard Hughes. <laughs> Howard Hughes spent the second half of the 1930s romancing Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn and establishing himself as a record-breaking aviator, but he didn't make any movies. By 1940, feeling that he had lost what name recognition he had once had in Hollywood, he got back into the movie business. Over the next seven years, he would only produce one finished film, but that would be enough to catapult him back into the spotlight in a big way. It also made a star of this person. Jane Russell was a teenager from the Valley with no movie experience when Howard Hughes cast her in The Outlaw. Thanks to his publicity machine, she would become internationally famous years before most people saw the movie, which Hughes held from release while calibrating its monumental marketing campaign and then fighting over that marketing campaign with the censors. Hughes had signed Russell to a personal contract, which made it so that she couldn't make movies for any other producer without his permission. And thus, Jane only appeared in three movies through the entirety of the 1940s. But once Hughes bought RKO Studios, he was able to generate vehicles for Russell more regularly, and she made two particularly memorable films at, at the studio, his Kind of Woman and Macau, both of which co-starred Robert Mitchum. Mitchum was Hughes' favorite actor, and Russell was his favorite actress, and both represented his physical ideals for their respective genders. Speaking of Howard Hughes' feminine ideal, once Jane Russell became the anchor of his filmmaking life, Hughes began pursuing a number of women with extremely similar physical vital statistics. Raven hair, proportionately large chests, pillowy lips, and chiseled cheeks. This is Faith Domergue, a teenage Warner Brothers contract starlet who was brought to a party on Hughes's, Hughes's yacht by Johnny Meyer, a publicist slash procurer who came to work for Hughes after having done similar work for Errol Flynn. The FBI kept tabs on Meyer, and they trusted a source who referred to Meyer as, quote, essentially a pimp, adding, flesh is all he knows. A few months after meeting Faith, Hughes proposed to her and she accepted. He also bought her contract from Warner Brothers. He promised Faith they would marry and that he would turn her into a major star, like Jean Harlow before her. Neither of those things happened, in part because Hughes was distracted by so many other brunettes, such as, Yvonne DiCarlo, who Hughes saw in her first major film role and then flew from Los Angeles to Vancouver just to meet her. At a nightclub where she was performing, Hughes had Johnny Meyer make the first move. And then there was heiress Gloria Vanderbilt, 
who would date Hughes for a summer, but ultimately marry Hughes's talent scout, Pat DeChico, who was rumored to have had something to do with the suspicious death of his first wife, actress Thelma Todd. Vanderbilt would take three husbands after DeChico, and with the fourth, Wyatt Cooper, she'd have a son named Anderson Cooper. And more or less simultaneously, Hughes was involved with Ava Gardner, who would probably be the wider world's platonic ideal of Howard Hughes's type. The difference between Jane Russell and Ava Gardner, as far as Hughes was concerned, was that Jane Russell did more or less what he wanted her to do. She had to because she was under contract. Hughes was never able to get that kind of power over Ava. He was never able to control her professionally, and after an incident real, relatively early in their relationship during which he beat her up pretty badly, and then she beat him up even worse. <laughs> she never trusted him enough to let her guard down around him, even though they did date intermittently from the early 1940s until the mid-1950s. Right after she rejected him for the last time, Gardner starred in The Barefoot Contessa, playing a movie star who was procured for a millionaire in a situation very similar to many stories involving Hughes particularly the one about Johnny Meyer approaching Yvonne DiCarlo on Hughes's behalf in the Vancouver nightclub. Ava believed the movie was about her and Hughes, and Hughes believed so too, to the extent that he forced writer-director Joe Mankiewicz to make last-minute cuts and changes to voiceover so as to protect Hughes's own image. Finally, the last major Hughes brunette. Jean Peters was a starlet under contract at Fox when Hughes began dating her in 1946. They met the weekend that Hughes test flew an experimental plane he had designed and crashed it into a Beverly Hills neighborhood. Hughes nearly died in that crash. He and Jean Peters would be involved with one another for another 25 years. Peters made a number of interesting films, such as Viva Zapata, Viva Zapata with Marlon Brando, Niagara with Marilyn Monroe, and Sam Fuller's pickup on South Street, in which she plays a sometime sex worker with what appears to be a fetish for violence. And then, in 1957, 11 years after they first met, she and Hughes would suddenly elope, and Peters would abruptly retire from the movies. In fact, within a couple of years, the couple had all but fallen off the face of the earth, although, as I detail in the book, it was not a romantic seclusion. By many accounts, they never saw each other after 1966, although they remained married until 1971. Or did they? Were they ever really married after all? After Hughes died, this person... <coughs> Sorry, these slides are out of order. Um, this person came forward and questioned the legality of Hughes's marriage to Peters. Terry Moore had been a child actress, she had been under contract to Fox at the same time as Jean Peters, and she had been nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for a film called Come Back Little Sheba. She had also been romantically involved with Hughes at the same time as Jean Peters. That Terry had some kind of relationship with Hughes was widely reported during that relationship in the 1950s. But in the days after Hughes's death, Moore publicly claimed for the first time that she and Hughes had been secretly married on a boat in 1949. Because Hughes had not left behind a recent certified will, a battle ensued to determine his legitimate heirs. 
and Terry Moore inserted herself into this battle. She spent almost a decade trying to get a court to recognize her as Hughes's legitimate widow. And to find out what happened next, you're gonna have to read the book. <laughs> My name is Mark Olson. I'm a, I write about movies for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, it's, a, it's a real treat to be here. Um, thank you, Dana, for, for asking me to be here. Sure, thank you. Uh, so my first question is simply the title of the book, um, Howard Hughes's Hollywood with the proper construction of the S apostrophe S. Was that ever a conversation? Because now everybody does like the character saving S apostrophe. Yeah, I, that's what I did as well, and then my editor changed every single one. So, uh, and I defer to him because I don't know. And now, you did a season of the podcast that was called The Many Loves of Howard Hughes, and... It wasn't really a season, it was more of an intermittent series. There was like three or four episodes sprinkled across a period of time. Well, did that provide to you, like, is that in fact sort of like the basis of the core of the book, like what to you is the relationship between the book and not even just those few shows, but like the podcast overall? Well, those podcast episodes were part of my book proposal and it was sort of on a really small scale proof of concept for the book, but the I scrapped the episodes when I wrote the book and did all new research. I know you also right now have a podcast season that is in fact related to the book and it's in some ways, you will describe it better than me, makes for its characters and people that sort of didn't get their full due in the book. And so it's a really, to me, interesting way of f footnoting the book. Do, do you see it that way? And did you always kind of think there was going to be somehow the book and the podcast would tie together? Well, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something on the podcast that would sort of talk about the book without just copying it because... That's not really fair to anybody. It's not really fair to listeners, and it's not really fair to readers of the book. And so I just came up with this idea of, like, there are some actresses and some people in the book who come up on the periphery, but they don't get the full treatment that these actresses who are in my slideshow got, you know? Like, so that I think that this actress, Linda Darnell, is extremely fascinating, but she's just kind of in one anecdote in the book. And doing a podcast episode means that I get to talk about her whole movie career. And then there's been so much written about Hughes. There's been so many movie versions of Hughes. How did you sort of come to see there being like a, a hole, that there was a lane for you to get into as far as like there was something still to be said about Howard Hughes? Well, I was always kind of using Howard Hughes as like a bait and switch. Um, I always thought of him as a Trojan horse so that I could talk about 10 actresses, most of whom are either forgotten or no longer considered famous. Um, if I had just pitched a book of like, I want to write about 10 actresses, um, maybe now that would sell, but in 2015 when I did pitch this book, it wouldn't have. Um, and so Howard Hughes became this thing where it could be the spine of the book and it could provide some structuring information and, and the fact that he arrives in Hollywood in 1925 and he basically leaves and starts to disappear at the end of the 50s, that is pretty much exactly what historians refer to as the classical Hollywood era. So that's just a really useful rubric for talking about this time when the studio system was rising to its peak and then falling apart. And he has a hand in so many of the different evolutions 
during that time as well. Right now, you talk about him very specifically as a master of publicity and, and the media, and I've never heard of him spoken about in that way before. How did you kind of land on this conception of what maybe Hughes's true gifts were? Well, it started by looking at the files that his publicist kept, um, which are kind of like the great untapped resources that have to do with Howard Hughes. Um, there's files in Las Vegas that were kept by his publicist that he employed from the late 40s until the end of his life. There are files in Beverly Hills at the Academy Library from his first publicist, Lincoln Korberg, who was his publicist in the late 20s and the 1930s. And at UCLA, there are files from Russell Birdwell, who is the publicist who worked on The Outlaw and was responsible for shaping Jane Russell. So in those files, you can see like not only the press releases that they sent out, but the internal office memos where they're talking about how to, how to sell these ideas and what message you want to get out there, and, and in some cases, what is the truth that we don't want to talk about. And so it was, yeah, it just became really clear that this was happening behind the scenes. And I want to be sure to ask you just about the amount of research that you did, and I mean, was it, is it difficult as to gain access to those materials, like the different libraries and archives that you were going to? No. Um, I mean, all of those things are just, they're available. You just have to go to the place and you have to basically stop your life for however long you can devote to go to these places because, you know, they keep very specific library hours. It's usually nine to four. And so you have to just really make the most of it and, and do it. And they ha all have different rules about what you can photocopy, what you can take pictures of, what you can scan. So that's the actual process of doing the research is difficult and very draining, but getting access is super easy. Right now, you came across a number of unpublished manuscripts and even memoirs of a lot of the people that you've focused on. I think Faith Dumerg, am I saying it correct? Dumerg. Dumerg. Uh -huh. And then also... This one might have been published, the Frederickers Sager Moss that you did a recent podcast yeah. episode about. That was published, I think, in 1999, but it, it's it's not it's not that easy to find, and for some reason, people don't talk about it. But do you feel like finding those kind of materials? I mean, especially the Faith memoir. That just seems like such a goldmine of material. It's kind of incredible to me that that stuff hasn't been published and hasn't been really like used before as part of Hughes's story. Well, the Faith Demerig manuscript, that is um, in Austin, Texas, and it's part of the many, many hundreds of boxes of files that were collected as part of these lawsuits over what would happen to Hughes' estate after he died because he didn't leave behind a will. Um, and it's very clear from, first of all, the, the manuscript as it exists in those files is incomplete. Like, it looks like the last few pages at least are missing. It basically cuts off as soon as she cuts Howard Hughes out of her life. Um, and there's a, like a post-it note on it that's basically like, we're not gonna have any more trouble with Faith. And it just basically implies that, that the Hughes camp paid her to not publish that. Um, so that's why that's there. I, I don't think it could be published, but you can quote from it. <laughs> and can you talk more about Frederica Sager-Moss as well? Because I found, found her to just be a fascinating figure because she's someone who came to Hollywood to be a screenwriter and the next thing you know she's basically being asked to like be sitting on men's laps at like after hours parties <laughs> and she, you get a sense of like what how much the machinery of Hollywood of that period thwarted a woman like her in just trying to write movies for the screen. Yeah I mean you, you've said a lot about her but she was a screenwriter who came grew up in New York as part of a Russian Jewish family and when she was 
I think 22 years old, she got the job as the story editor at Universal in New York. Um, and then she, they really needed her to take this position because two men above her had like basically flamed out in the position and she knew how to do the job. So they, they promised her that if she acted as story editor for a year, which was not a job that involved writing, they would then send her to Hollywood and allow her to write screenplays. And then on day 365, they, they, her higher-ups at Universal basically were like, we're not gonna hold to that deal, we want you to train your replacement instead. Um, so she quit her job and went out to California by herself to try to become a screenwriter. And she ended up getting a job at MGM. And she wrote um, credited or otherwise movies for Clara Bow and Norma Shearer and I think Claudette Colbert. Um, but her story is really fascinating to me because she had some success, but more than that, she spent 30 years just kind of working and kind of toiling and not amassing very many credits and doing a lot of work that she wasn't credited for and just kind of barely scraping by. And then she went into another line of work. I mean, she just basically around, I think in her late 40s, she just gave up and became an insurance agent and made a lot of money as an insurance agent. And then... In 1999, she wrote this memoir about her time in Hollywood, and she ended up living to be 112 years old. Oh. And how did you go about basically casting the book? Like, how did you choose those actresses and people that you wanted to focus on? Um, well, I knew that I, I wanted to be able to talk about people in enough, enough depth so that we wouldn't be able to talk about like every woman who Howard Hughes probably had sex with or cast in a movie. Um, so I was going to have to narrow it down, and I honestly mostly picked the actresses that I was the most interested in, the ones where I thought they had a substantial enough relationship either with Hughes or played a substantial enough role in his career. Um, in some cases, like I, I, I found in doing the research that certain actresses paired well with one another, like Hepburn and Rogers, or working at the same studio at the same time that they're both involved with him, and the same with Terry Moore and Jean Peters. Um, but um, it's basically just like the ones that I was the most interested in, the, one where, the ones where there was the most to say about, and the ones that would allow me to talk about this long period of time. Emil, was it a challenge for you in, sort of in writing the book and balancing out the more sort of research-based sections of it, and as you will all discover when you read the book, there are a number of times when you just sort of like sink into a movie and it's like, oh, we're just gonna talk about this movie for like a while. And essentially your critical analysis of some of the movies under, under you know, discussion, was it hard for you to kind of balance those two elements of the book? Did they go together kind of naturally for you? Yeah, it's totally natural. I mean, that's basically what I try to do on the podcast is I, I'm doing the research so that I can give you context for the film analysis so that hopefully you'll go and track down the movies and watch them. Um, and then the book is just basically the same thing. Because um, just this morning there was published on the website for Entertainment Weekly, a rival publication, a, uh, a really terrific list of movies that you would suggest that people take a chance to watch as part of the kind of reading the book and the project. Um, and you talk in there about in that list about how Hughes was as a filmmaker really eccentric. Like he made these oddball sort of genre mashup movies. And was that something you feel like you just discovered in the course of your your research? Was like what the sort of identity of Hughes as a director and a producer was? Well, I don't think he had much of an identity as a director beyond like boobs. Um, that's <laughs> those were kind of his signature of the two films he directed. 
Um, as a producer, I think it was a little bit of like an idiot savant. Like he had very specific ideas of what he wanted to see on screen and, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And so th that's how you get a movie like His Kind of Woman, which is a film noir that's also sort of a meta movie, that's also a comedy, that's also like an adventure movie that has weird sex stuff in it. Then like Vincent Price playing a comic character who also has like a really heartfelt monologue about never having been in love. <laughs> so. And there's a movie that's going to be screening at LACMA later this month called Caught, mm -hmm. that uh, you're going to be there for that. And it... You talk about how the movie's sort of like this weird revenge piece made by uh, Max Opholz before he leaves Hollywood to go back to Europe to make like the earrings of Madame de and the Plaisir and all the Montez. But that, and in that movie, there's a character played by Robert Ryan that's like obviously a fake Howard Hughes, but that none of the writing, like the reviews of the day, no one mentions this. And it seems to me like kind of incredible that nobody noticed that? Like, was that something that was a surprise to you, that, that, what, that people didn't notice it at the time? Well, honestly, I don't think the movie got a large enough release. If It was released by an independent company, and um, I just I don't think it really got a nationwide release. So it, it wasn't written about in most publications, and I tried to track down reviews of it, and, and tr I tried to understand, like, did anybody mention Howard Hughes, and it doesn't seem like they did. Um, the exhibitors that did book the film, like, just found that nobody came to see it, and they pulled it really quickly. I mean, it was kind of a massive disaster. But it, it is really clear when you watch it now that Robert Ryan is playing Howard Hughes. And now with so many of the women that you're writing about, their relationship to Hughes exists at this very strange intersection of like their personal lives and their professional lives with Hughes. And it seems like that often worked well for him, didn't really work well for the women. And can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Like the way that, you know, for like Ida Lupino, who I think did not have a particularly romantic relationship for him, that maybe led to one kind of dynamic, but then someone like Ava Gardner, who had this very hot and cold relationship with him, maybe led to a different dynamic. Just that intersection, that for all these women, they existed in both his sort of like personal and professional lives. I'm sorry, I don't really know what the question is. Uh, <laughs> just the, like, in some ways, I mean, it's one of the core like one of the core ideas of the book is the way that like every one of these women, it's not just that like he was their boss, but he became their friend or confidant or paramour. Like they always, their lives always became much more intertwined. And I don't know if that was a particularly Hughesian thing or like just what you make of the fact that they all had these really complicated relationships with him. He was never just their boss. Yeah. Um... Well, I think he was just Ilopino's boss when she was making movies at RKO. Um, I don't know. That's just kind of what the book is about. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. I, I, guess, I guess I'm just like no, no, no. Someone like I'm Faith feeling stupid. Yeah. Someone like <laughs> someone like Faith Demers, like he strung her along for years, where like wouldn't marry her, also wouldn't put her in any movies, and did you did you take the step of kind of psychologizing either Hughes or Faith as to like what that dynamic was and why she would stay in a relationship like that or what he was sort of doing to her and putting her through all that? Well, I do think that that relationship is a pretty textbook example of what we call gaslighting, where he was telling her that these things that she was perceiving that were clearly happening were not happening. 
Um, and those things included him being involved with other women while he was involved with her, him not taking her career seriously. She was right about all of these things, and he kept lying to her and saying, you're wrong, you're crazy, you're making stuff up, you're paranoid. Um, and I just, I mean, I tried to have empathy for her. She was 16 when they met, 17 when they got engaged, and he bought her contract from Warner Brothers and. He also um, gave her dad and her grandfather a job and basically was paying off her whole family to be on, on his side rather than her side so that when they would have fights, her mother would be like, you must go back to Howard Hughes, you can't leave him. Um, and so I think that she was just in a terrible situation. Where she did actually try to break things off with him several times and the only people she could run to were her family and they were like, no, you gotta go back. So it, it's a really horrible situation, and, and she's, you know, she's not like the most accomplished writer, but I, I found it very moving reading her, her writing about the, these experiences. And now throughout the book as well, you, um, you write in just this wonderful way about clothes, and like the, the costumes in particular of Jean Harlow and Jane Russell, and how involved Hughes got with the design of their clothes, the way that they would wear them. Can you talk a little bit about Hughes' relationship to women's clothing? Like, there's just something about the way that you describe it and his interest in it that I, I found really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of like a, you know, his primary interests were movies, airplanes, uh, golf for a while. But he, he thought of himself as an inventor. And so, obviously, that mani manifested itself quite a bit in the design and construction of airplanes. But th there are also a lot of stories of him designing garments for women to wear, even women who are not in movies that he produced. I mean, he, like Yvonne DiCarlo in her autobiography talks mm -hmm. about like this dress that he designed and had made for her that he insisted that she wore on all of their dates and she just thought it was the ugliest thing, super unflattering, <laughs> but she like would wear it when he was around because he liked it. Um, yeah, I think it, it, you know, it's sort of um, a little idiosyncratic syncrasy of his that he thought he was a good clothing designer um, but the, what it manifests as in the movies is usually again just like how can we get what he referred to in, when talking about Jane Russell how can we get more production out of her tips <laughs> and now the, even just now when you were doing your presentation uh, I did not realize he had a connection to Gloria Vanderbilt which obviously leads to a connection to Anderson Cooper Like, and in the book there's a section about Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman and him being involved in the production of their films from Boley. Were you ever surprised by just how many people his life touched? The fact that it seems like you can somehow tendril your way out to just about anybody from like the middle period of the 20th century and they have some connection to Hughes. Like at some point, what did you make of that? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, there's also like a lot of people who I never even mentioned in the book at all. I mean, I, there's nothing about Hedy Lamarr, who he was involved with to some extent and um, definitely like gave her money for her inventions to like help her. Like, um, Hedy Lamarr invented a technology that led to the modern Bluetooth, and Howard Hughes bankrolled her work on that. Um, that's not in my book because there's just too much else to talk about. She, she definitely qualifies as one of the beautiful brunettes, though. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's you have to narrow it down somewhere, you know. And so I, I tried to narrow it down to making sure I was finding women who are representative of all the different things that I wanted to talk about. I know at a few points in the book, you kind of almost break out of the main narrative and you write 
in the first person to explain kind of your thinking, your methodology about like a particular part of the book, your approach to something. In particular, when you're talking about the sort of sexual identity of Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Hughes himself, can you talk about the decision to sort of like write at times in the first person and kind of explain yourself in that way, and especially why for that section in particular? I don't know that it was that conscious of a decision, um, and I honestly can't remember other times when I did it in the book, but um, in that case, I guess what I say is, what do I say in the first person? Uh, well, you'd say like, you know, uh, um, should have written the page down. <laughs> uh, you, you just kind of say that you, you explain the fact that you want to talk about like the, the fact that this is something a lot of people talk about with regards to the three of them. Mm -hmm. You personally don't think that it really matters what the sort of truth oh, of it I is. Guess I, I guess what I was saying is that it's, um, that I had chosen not to try to like spend a lot of time figuring out who dead people really had sex with um, because I just felt like it was kind of a waste of time. Um, there is a, like a kind of genre of book that is about proving that dead movie stars were gay. Um, and I just didn't want this book to be doing that because I also just, especially like increasingly over time, I just don't think it matters that much who Catherine Hepburn had sex with, like whether she had sex with women or men or probably most likely both. Um, I just feel like sexual where people are understanding more and more that sexual identity is fluid and to write books in which we in which it's a project is made of trying to out somebody, it just, it feels like putting people in boxes in a weird way that I don't feel comfortable doing. And then uh, one of the things that, <laughs> one of the things that I found to be just a real treat in reading the book is just this simple Hollywoodness of the book itself. I mean, the, um, the early sections of it, there's these parties at the Alexandria Hotel, there's a lot of stuff that happens at the Ambassador Hotel, the Beverly Wilshire, Rupert Hughes, his uncle, has a home just around the corner from here on Los Feliz Boulevard. And, and uh, inspired by Arabian Nights. <laughs> and was that something you got a kick out of? Like, especially like if you're in some archive in Texas or wherever you were, and you're reading about stuff that's kind of taking place like in your neighborhood. Yeah, it's, it's always fun to like come across an address and then look it up on, on Google Maps and, and see where it is and see if the thing is still there. And um, before we take some questions from the audience, I've got just one more question for you, which is kind of, I think, both with this book and the podcast and even your, your Meryl Streep book, I feel like there's kind of a larger project that you're getting, you're pushing towards, that you're centering women's stories into the history of Hollywood in a way that they often have not allowed to be up until now. And do you, would you agree with my assessment that that's kind of what you're on about? And do you think it's simply a matter of putting those stories into the history, or like they, they should have, frankly, already already been there? Well, yeah, they definitely should have been there already. Um, and it's it's kind of shocking the extent to which so much of film history is still kind of like this great man-centric thing. Um, and so I, I can't say that it was like, that's why I got into this business. Um, it's something that I, I sort of stumbled into over time and have just become more and more drawn to over time. But definitely now I feel like what I'm most interested in is telling the history of Hollywood from a female point of view. And we have some time for some questions from the audience. Yep, we got one right here in the front. Okay. Uh, pollution issues coming out, you know, Hollywood, you know, 
approval, mm -hmm. and as part of it, she intimates that she lost her virginity to you in the late 20s. However, at the time the book was written, Hughes was still alive, and I think the publisher, hearing a possible Cliffordian incident, yeah, had him soft pedal the angle so Hughes himself was not mentioned. But from the description, you could tell it was obviously him. And this would have been at the time when he was looking for a replacement for Glenn Nissen as the leading lady of Hell's Angels. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted whether you found anything about that. Apparently, any relationship they had was done with the utmost discreetness. And so, I am. Um, so, uh, uh, I'll repeat the question. Okay. Uh, just, did, did you come across anything in particular about Carol Lombard and her having a relationship with you? I've read that she did, but I mean, I, I've read it in sources that I wouldn't consider to be primary documents, so I really don't know. Uh, anybody else? Nope, oh, right Hi, um, I'm a big fan of your work. Your work and left this stuff so dark. I'm unable to access your podcast. So I'm really glad you've written the book. <laughs> Do you have any future ideas or books, material that you're allowed to work on for a future project? And the question has to do with, do you have any future book ideas? I do, but I, I haven't even told my agent yet, so <laughs> sorry. I, I can't talk about them right now. Oh, right there. Um, so kind of adding on to your last question, because right now we are looking at a lot more representations of women, of you know, people of color, so not only in front of the screen, but also behind the screen. So I was wondering, do you have any plans to write about, let's say, below the line talents, like women cinematographers, women costume designers, or even cinematographers, um, and if so, I was just wondering how easy it is to find material on this because there's already a, a dearth of women workers in Hollywood. And the question has to do with writing about sort of below the line talent, like cinematographers, costume designers, uh, as part uh, in their role in classic Hollywood. I don't have any specific plans, but I mean, certainly it would be an interesting thing to do. Um, and because I haven't done the research, I don't know how easy it would be, but. I mean, one idea that I've had for a project that I've wanted to start for a while, and I've done some research about trying to start it, and I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen with it, but I'd like to do some kind of oral history project trying to get the stories of women who have worked in the film industry before we lose them. Um, and so it, uh, that, w that project would, I would specifically try to talk to women. My primary goal would not be to talk to actresses first. It would be to talk to behind-the-scenes people first. There, yep, right there. Um, I watched a documentary where David Gardner evidently took a lot of interest in the Kennedy case, and I'm just wondering why she would stand by his side so concernedly for that. And the question has to do with Ava Gardner and why she specifically would sort of stand by Hughes as long as she did. I haven't seen that documentary. That's not. That's not what I've read. I mean, I, I, I know, I have seen The Aviator and, and the depiction of their relationship in that film doesn't feel very truth, truthful to me. And uh, it's kind of inevitable, I have to ask you, do you have like a favorite movie Hughes? Like, is there one that seems like most accurate to you? Um, well, you know, I never met the guy. <laughs> um, but I, I will say that 
uh, Rules Don't Apply came out while I was doing this research, and right after I had um, spent a lot of time in Austin reading telegrams that he had sent in the 1930s and reading these depositions that people gave talking in great detail about his life and what he was like. And I think even though Warren Beatty changed that character to make it more like Warren Beatty and to incorporate aspects of who Warren Beatty is today and in the past, um, there, he did capture something that I recognized from the hues I got to know in my research. Uh, anytime I can hear someone say something positive about rules that apply, it would be very dear to my heart. That um, I think that's going to do it for the talking portion of the evening. And now we'll get on to the signing portion of the evening. Thanks for coming, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.